Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian, I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing Lisa Frankenstein from 2024, directed by Zelda Williams, written by Diablo Cody, starring Catherine Newton, Cole Sprouse, Liza Soberano, and Carla Gugino. In this film, a lonely teenage girl makes friends with a creature that has just emerged from the grave. If you're new to the show, we'll have a spoiler-free discussion on this film for the first 15 or 20 minutes, and then we're going to slip into spoiler mode. We'll play some transition music just to warn you that it's coming before then. After that time, we'll walk through the plot in detail, spoiling everything as we go, and review the film. Ashvin? How's it going, man? Haven't had much theater experiences lately, aside from this and Night Swim, huh? I know, yeah. Second film of 2024. Nice. And uh, pretty timely with Valentine's Day. Yeah, right. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. I think this comes out on Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well timed. Happy Valentine's Day, Ash. This is uh, fitting that we're discussing a a romance, and I imagine that's probably why they chose this release. Yeah, I mean, is this like a rom-com horror film or something? Yeah, sure. I'd call it a horror comedy romance. Yeah, or rom com. Okay. Yeah. Kind of fits a little bit into that uh, teen girl horror subgenre we discussed on our Jennifer's Body episode. Like yeah. Ginger think... Snaps, It Follows, Carrie. Yeah. That, uh, that, Carrie. <laughs> oh, oh, I thought you were putting that with the rom com. Uh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Teen girl horror, not rom com. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, do you feel as two, like, male hosts on, on this podcast, obviously not teenagers? Uh, is this like missing the mark with the two of us here? Oh, I'm sure there's, we're very unqualified to discuss this subgenre. Cool. And it's not just like, Hey, this, these movies are for teenage girls, but we, boy, I lost the notes to the Jennifer's body episode, but there was an article in Fangoria years ago, written by a woman who coined the term teen girl horror to talk about movies that are about a teenage girl protagonist who's going through a bit of a coming-of-age story. It may involve puberty or periods or a sexual awakening of some sort. And I think this this falls into that bucket. Yeah, I think so. That also seems very much uh, the DNA of Diablo Cody as well. I feel like a lot of her films have that theme, whether they're horror or like comedy like Juno or um, what else has she done? Um, Jennifer's Body. Oh, yeah, and Jennifer's Body, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, that is very much true to her stories, and I I wish I'd seen some of her other movies. Those are really the only ones I've seen that she has written, Um, although she did do some script revisions uncredited in in the 2013 Evil Dead remake. I saw that. That's crazy. I I don't know if we talked about that when we saw that film, did we? I think we did. Oh, okay. But I'm not 100% sure. Okay, That's, that's crazy. Yeah, it w- I went back and listened to our Jennifer's Body episode, and we were talking about how Diablo said she felt like she was blackballed from horror, so to speak, on Eli Roth's podcast uh, after Jennifer's Body didn't really get, wasn't met with that much success or critical acclaim. And we talked in that episode how it's kind of had a resurgence and found its status as a cult classic. And she has a quote, a recent quote, actually, where she said, if people hadn't rediscovered Jennifer's body, I would not have written Lisa Frankenstein. With, the, with that whole area, that genre, I kind of felt unwelcome in it because I had flopped so hard on my last attempt. Wow. So it's cool to see her back. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, w- I wonder, was she just ahead of her time with Jennifer's body? Because uh, what was that, like late 2000s? I want to say that was 2009. 
Okay. And, uh, and yeah, I, I don't remember like, uh, if we talked about like what caused the resurgence of that film in the last few years, is it, uh, just like where we are as a society and going back and like recognizing the value of those films? I think so. I mean, it's a fairly feminist film and I think we're just, we kind of took it back and recognized some of the themes in it. Sure. Yeah. That's we as us, you and you and I, teenage girls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the three of us. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I'm glad uh, she's back in, in, in this genre. Uh, I've always like, liked her writing. I, th- I think she's a very smart uh, filmmaker. Right. I, and she's an Academy Award-winning filmmaker. Her script won an Oscar uh, for Juno. And she is also a Tony Award winner. Her Broadway musical, Jagged Little Pill, based on the album of the same name by Alanis Morissette, won a Tony. That's awesome. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Uh, that would be fun to see. Yeah, I love like, Jagged Little Pill. Yeah, that was a good album. This is good. Uh, she also created and wrote the TV show, The United States of Terra, for Showtime, and the Amazon Prime TV series, One Mississippi. But I think it had been t- since 2018, since... Uh, like one of her scripts was turned into a feature-length film. Yeah. Damn, six years. I know. It's, those years just add up, man. 2018 does not feel like long ago. I know. <laughs> um. So she is, speaking of Diablo Cody quotes, she said, uh, we're in a Frankenstein moment. And she said, this happens in Hollywood where there's an idea that's floating around in the creative hive mind and it's never deliberate, but it's interesting. And I didn't really realize we were in a Frankenstein moment, but... Poor Things, obviously, just yep. came out not too long ago. And then uh, Margarito Dorito on Discord recently pointed out that last year had two movies, Birth slash Rebirth and the Angry Black Girl and Her Monster, which were kind of variations on the Frankenstein theme. Yeah. So two or three films in one year. That's that's a lot. What do you think is driving this resurgence of Frankenstein? That's a tough one, man. I, I have nothing intelligent to theorize on that one. How about you? Uh, so I've only seen one of those films, the angry black girl and her monster. Um, and it, I thought it was really cool cause they, they used Frankenstein in a way, uh, to like embody like a lot of, um, what was, uh, impacting like issues of the, of that community. And then I feel like poor things, I haven't seen it yet, but everyone's like talking it up. Like it's this really funny film and it's like a satire on society. So I feel like Frankenstein suddenly has become like this monster who can like be a mirror to like the things that are wrong in our society. Has that always been the case with Frankenstein or that seems like a new uh, twist on him? Yeah. I mean, I think early takes on Frankenstein were more focused on the theme of the dangers of science. And Mm. this goes back to what we've been recently talking about a lot, how there's just echoes of the fear of technology and science throughout so much horror. And do you remember when we reviewed the curse of Frankenstein? From the 50s? Uh, vaguely. It was Hammer's take on? Yeah. That was very much about Dr. Frankenstein pushing the boundaries of science. And I think those films were more interested in wrestling with the morality of how far is too far and mm. what things should just be left alone sure. when it comes to science and technology and, you know, left to the realm of God, if you will, or right. nature. Yeah. But I don't think, I think maybe we're realizing that there's, a lot of richness to that story and a lot of different stories you can tell and themes you can convey with the Frankenstein yeah. archetype. Yeah. Kind of like vampires. Kind of like vampires, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really cool to see, see, uh, or to see that character being used uh, in, in all these different ways. Um, and yeah, I wonder how many more films like this we're going to have uh, that play to this. Do you think this also falls into uh, that whole idea you're talking about? Oh, shoot. Like, uh, what was that Christmas movie you hated this time? It's a wonderful knife. Is that it? 
Yeah, sure did. Hated it. Yeah, <laughs> this this theme of movies that take like a common plot and just kind of like uh, add in like a scary elements to 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 make it a horror film. Oh sure, I think that this is such an idea in the public domain that it's not really comparable to Totally Killer or It's a Wonderful Knife, which were mashups of like other movies, like straight homages to other films with a, a horror tinge. You know, Back to the Future and It's a Wonderful Life. Mm, yeah, Frankenstein's in the public domain, so it's kind of a. It's just been a story that you can make and remake endlessly. If it didn't have Frankenstein in the title, there have been dozens of movies that included the character or had a sure a theme of which. Um, yeah, gotcha. So not not like something unique that belongs to like a singular movie. Yeah, I don't here. think yeah. so. I don't think so. Yeah, uh, I think the the other part. Maybe when we get to the plot, uh, I I think there's like this borrows from movies like Edward Scissorhands and Big Way, and like is this like a modern day remaking of that, or not? Yeah, uh, for sure. <clears throat> you know that that book, that screenwriting book that I referenced in our genre discussion last time about action versus horror with the Terminator. Mm. There was something on that same page that I quoted from where the author, uh, David Trotter, or is it David Trottier? I'm not sure. In the Screenwriter's Bible, he said, I interviewed a successful children's book writer who told me that there are really only two basic stories, Cinderella and Jack the Giant Killer. (laughs) And this is very much Cinderella, like a sad girl living a lonely life, uh, finds love with the help of a magical or supernatural force. Oh, damn. This is basically like the goth yeah. Or, or horror version of Cinderella. Right. And Edward Scissorhands isn't necessarily that different from that. that yeah. different. It also reminds me, I'm not sure if that could fit the Cinderella story into these movies because I haven't seen them in a while, but Heathers and maybe even Beetlejuice kind of fit the mood and tone and structure of this movie. Yeah, kind of like a goth vibe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even Adam's Family, like a, yeah. quite a different movie, but a, just a similar goth reveling in, in right. death and and all that is sad right right wow that quote kind of blows me away that like every story comes down to those two storylines right i don't know if I, i've subscribed to it or not but yeah in the book it was basically like cinderella is uh you know pretty woman for example and jack the giant killer is diehard as an example <laughs> yeah wow cool all right i'll keep, keep that in mind that's really yeah. cool uh, while I don't think that this movie really had much themes of tech horror, uh, and we talk about how Frankenstein maybe did have themes of that, one thing people were concerned about in the 80s was uh, murmurs of the dangers of tanning beds, which were <laughs> <laughs> rising in popularity during that time. They were introduced to the U.S. in 1978. Oh. Uh, so the indoor tanning industry was kind of, you know, hitting its stride in the 80s. And yeah. They are dangerous, so... Uh, <laughs> Maybe this movie is warning us about the dangers of tanning technology. Yeah, I always thought that was like a 90s thing, but uh, yeah, that, that's crazy. It was there in the 80s. Uh, do you still see those? Do people still own tanning beds? I never knew of people owning their own personal tanning beds, but I suppose you could. Oh, but you'd but go you, somewhere, right? To get right. Thing. I feel like there are still tanning salons. Yeah, yeah, you might be right. Um, yeah, I could see that in certain parts of the country, appealing mm-hmm. to certain type of people, yeah. Yeah. Uh, something that blew my mind, the director, Zelda Williams, is the daughter of Robin Williams? Isn't that crazy? I did not know that. I know. I don't I know how I didn't know that. Yeah, and this is, what, like, only her third feature film? 
This is her feature directorial debut, from oh. what I understand. I think okay. her other credits were short films. Got it. Okay, cool. That's yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know like uh, he had a daughter that was in like showbiz at all, and uh, she's been doing other stuff outside of directing. I think was she an actress as well? She's yeah, she's a. I think, I mean, maybe she's transitioning more into directing, but she has more credits as an actor. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catherine Newton, no stranger to horror, and maybe a. a Oh, someone whose star is rising. She was in Paranormal Activity 4 in 2012 and in 2020's Freaky alongside Vince Vaughn. And she was in the Marvel... I don't know. if the, Do they still consider it the MCU now or is it just Marvel movies? Oh, I, I, th- I thought those were always the same thing. I know. I, I think so. I don't know. But she was in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. So she's gotten more like... Bigger roles. Mass exposure lately. Yeah. We haven't covered Paranormal Activity 4 yet, have we? No, we have not. We skipped two. We've just done one and three. I feel like we should do two and then yeah. head into four. We should, yeah. That's a decent franchise. I, I've I've plowed into it. I, I think I need like one more to complete it. No way, really? I've been kind of pleasantly surprised. What are there, like five or six in that? Uh, boy, good question, man. Five, six. I want to say there's like seven now. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah, I feel like there were like some iterations at the end. Uh, so yeah, that, that'd be cool to crawl through that franchise a little bit more. For sure. And uh, speaking of Brian have his mind blown by who people are, Cole Sprouse did not realize he was Julian from Big Daddy, the little kid in Big oh, Daddy. Oh, no way. Uh, and he, Yeah, and, and uh, Ben, Ross Geller's son on Friends. Oh, wow. Damn. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I didn't either. A lot of people also probably know him from the show Riverdale, which is not a show I've ever seen, but I'm understand is popular probably with younger people yeah when i was looking at the backgrounds of a lot of this cast it's like these shows that have like come out on netflix or the cw in like the last five ten years and you just like feel super old like i don't know what yeah that is. yeah that, right. that, that sounds really cool but yeah <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually kind of intrigued in riverdale i, I want to go check it out it has something to do with uh, archie and jughead right that's what i've heard and maybe like a murder story or something, but yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. Which is just like, what? <laughs> but supposedly it's good. Yeah. Supposedly. Yeah. I do want to check it out. Uh, or other recognizable face from horror movies is Carla Gugino, uh, who's best known by horror fans for her work in Mike Flanagan's films and TV shows. She was in The Fall of the House of Usher, Midnight Mass, The Haunting of Blind Manor, The Haunting of Hill House. And Gerald's Game, which I think we did an episode on. Yeah. No, we didn't. Oh, no way, really? It was a test episode. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Damn, let's get those ones confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she's been quite a, like a big name in horror, thanks to that guy. Yeah, again. oh yeah, for sure. Man, he is just cranking out these shows. Yeah. We get requests sometimes to, to cover those shows. Oh, yeah, but you're against uh, horror TV, right? Yeah. <sighs> A little bit. Not against it. I just like never really dig into it. But I, I feel like it'd be hard to tackle those on our show. I know. I know. They're it's like a lot 10 of hours. Yeah. 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 Uh, so sorry to everyone who's who's requested those. This has a Rotten Tomato score of only 50% from critics, but 82% from users, a budget of $13 million, and the opening weekend's box office was only $3.8 million. Uh, from some headlines I've seen, I think that uh, kind of industry analysts are thinking that the Super Bowl Sunday kind of sucked some of the life out of this weekend at the box office. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that was a, a thing that comes into play. Super Bowl Sunday, that, that, that's on Sunday. How many people are going to the movies on a Sunday evening anyway? I go to movies on Sunday evenings sometimes. Oh, okay. 
but I'm a lonely old man. So, (laughs) (laughs) and part of the reason I do that sometimes is because it's less crowded. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think uh, if you're opening a movie these days, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights are your big three nights, and yeah, yeah, uh, I don't know how much blame you can put on an event on Sunday night. Sure, maybe not, maybe not. Uh, the music's done by Isabella Summers, who is a founding member of Florence and the Machine. Oh, cool. Yeah. Is is she Florence and Florence and the Machine? She is not Florence. Oh, okay. Who plays I think Florence? there is an I think Florence is actually Florence. a person named Florence. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> who sings. Yeah. Gotcha. But I don't know that much about that band other than a few of their mainstream hits. Yeah, I generally like some of the stuff I've heard. Yeah, sure. The Dog Days was Dog that the Days. name of the song? Yeah. Or song. Over or something, yeah. Uh, shot by Paula Hudobro, who shot the Best Picture winner, winner Coda, and 16 episodes of the show Barry, lots of other titles. Nice. That's, that's about all I got in terms of background info. Is there anything that you feel worthy of sharing? Um, I saw in a quote from Diablo that this movie takes place in the same universe as Jennifer's body. What universe is that? I saw that quote too and kind of mentally discarded it just because <laughs> yeah. how could that mean anything? I mean, did you read the article? Was there some no. way that she described in which it did? Uh, no, she's just trying to like drum up a uh, hype to possibly get Jennifer's body too made. I never read the article. I just assume you're going to explain it to me. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and neither of us has read the article. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. What would be like signifying of this? Like it wasn't the same high school. I, like I doubt it was the same high school. Like what else would have been unique about the setting of Jennifer's body um, that would have come into play here? Was there? Yeah. I mean, I think this movie takes place in Louisiana. Uh, apparently. Did, did you get that feel watching it? I uh, no, I just uh, anywhere USA was kind of my understanding. I didn't okay. didn't grasp a state or yeah. even region. Okay, okay, yeah. Then I, yeah, I don't know what ties it. If someone else knows that, I'd love to hear. Yeah, I, I'm sure a listener will reach out if there is a, a true connection there. Yep. Speaking uh, no, of true connections, yeah. You ready for the Ohio connection? Let's do it. All right. As always, our friend Alex connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, so if you're in the area, swing by. Great bar with a great vibe. And Alex says, Lisa Frankenstein is a horror comedy film directed by Zelda Williams and starring Catherine Newton, Cole Sprouse, and longtime actor Carla Gugino. After early roles in the films Troop Beverly Hills, This Boy's Life, and Son-in-Law, Gugino received wider... Gugino received wider recognition for her starring roles in the Spy Kids trilogy, Sin City, Watchmen and Gerald's Game. Gugino also starred in the short-lived science fiction TV series Threshold about a secret government project investigating the first contact with an extraterrestrial species. In episode four, a psychiatric patient escapes from a hospital and is suspected of killing one of the guards and taking an underwear-clad female hostage. The escaped patient left a fictional hospital in Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Does Alex watch that show or something? That one feels like it might have taken some digging. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I don't know how he would have found that out unless, unless he's, like, watching that show. Yeah, that would have been a difficult one to stumble upon in yeah. uh, in the Googling. Although, you never know. Sometimes those things turn up right away. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, cool, good good connection. I, I she's, she's, uh, she's, been a, she's, like, been in a lot of stuff. She's a really good actress. She has, yeah. I, I always forget she's in Watchmen. Yeah, me too. And then uh, I think the other famous actor in this, I, I forget what his name is, but the dad of, uh, yeah, the, the the guy who plays the dad in this, he's the dad from Stranger Things, isn't he? 
Oh yeah, he is. Wow, it's like, I, and it's like a very similar role. Like eighties dad, like totally like out of the like yeah, not not with it or not yeah. quite present. Exactly. Yeah. So kind of playing the same role there. But uh, yeah, interesting cast coming together here. For sure. All right, buddy, you want to uh, walk through the plot now? Uh, yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, we're going to start spoiling things, everybody. But before we do, Ashwin, do you mind if I call you back in like, I don't know, 30 minutes or so? It's it's winter in Minnesota and I'm looking pretty pale, so I, I think I might uh, make a quick trip to one of those tanning salons. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll be right back. All right, I'll see you soon. Hey, hey, buddy, I'm back. Hey, how'd it go? You looking browned up? <laughs> it, it went great, man. You know, <clears throat> I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I've been flirting a little bit with wearing a toupee. Mm, yeah. And I wore it to the tanning salon in the tanning bed, and when I got out, the toupee seemed like it was now my own genuine hair. So <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's like on there. It's, it's authentic. Nice, and it's like growing on its own now. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's my hair now. That's awesome. I don't awesome. know what happened, but... Wow. I'm pretty jazzed about it. Total game changer. It's a whole different life now. <laughs> For real. A whole, whole new me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so this film opens with a stylish animated sequence which depicts a young man, a musician, perhaps in the Victorian era, who falls in love only to be heartbroken when the woman he's in love with falls in love with another man. He's depicted as dying a lonely death and is buried in a cemetery called Bachelor's Grove. We then transition away from the animation and into the year of 1989, where we meet another lonely soul, Lisa Swallows, played by Catherine Newton. Lisa is living with her father, and they have recently moved into the home of her evil stepmother, Janet, and well-meaning stepsister, Taffy. The reason for the new arrangement is that Lisa's mother was brutally murdered by an axe murderer right in front of Lisa, an event which traumatized her and left her unable to speak for months. She's a goth loner who whiles away many an hour at an abandoned cemetery called Bachelor's Grove, the same cemetery where the young man from the animated sequence was buried, and she specifically has decided that his grave is her favorite. She even talks to him, maintains his grave, and brings him gifts and whatnot. What did you think of all the intro and the exposition and introduction of the characters? Uh, I thought the intro was like creative uh, from a visual standpoint. Uh, I couldn't quite follow the storyline though of it. So hearing you describe it uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, did you pick that up on your own, or did, did you re- read that up? Somewhere? Yeah, I, I picked it up. It was. Uh, oh, it's just one of those things you watch in it. Tell I, I feel like it was fairly clear, but yeah, I mean they don't uh, they don't spell it out. Okay. But, okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I, I like the introduction to her. Um, I do feel, and, and like, yeah, right away, I think the, 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 as it's establishing, uh, the relationship between her and, uh, Taffy or like her and, uh, her father, or her stepmother, I think there's like some great like dialogue and like sharp, uh, um, yeah, back and forth going on, which help you kind of get grounded in who everyone is. But I, I feel like she gets like uh, drugged at a party, like super quick, like within like the first five or 10 minutes of this movie. And that's felt like a little bit too early for like a main character to be drugged that like, you're still like jumping on board with and getting a backstory of. So it felt a little bit rushed for me, but what about you? I think that's a really good point. It is, it does a uh, ramp up kind of quickly 
And I think one of my complaints in this movie is that I feel like I don't know Lisa well enough. And that could be a contributing factor. Um, yeah. Yeah. They, we, we, we learn a bit about her with her dialogue between her and Taffy um, as they get ready for this party. But right. yeah, we could have gotten to know her a little bit better first. Yep. And then the backstory is just kind of thrown at us when Taffy is telling someone else uh, at the party, I think. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, and, and via flashback as she describes it. Right. But yeah, they, they go they go to this party, and on the drive, Lisa confides that she has a crush on a boy at school named Michael, who is the editor of the school newspaper. And at the party, she is spellbound when she actually gets to meet him, and he tells her he enjoys the poems she submits to the paper. In an effort to impress him, she chugs a drink that is offered to her, not realizing that it has been laced with PCP. So I don't think she's really drugged on pur- purpose, but it, kind of an accident. Mm. Um, and then she begins to hallucinate and it's clear to others at the party that she's extremely intoxicated. Her lab partner, Doug from science class finds her, helps her up and seems to be taking care of her until he takes advantage of this opportunity and he gropes her and puts her hand on his crotch. She escapes, stumbles out of the party in disgust. And on the walk home, she stops by bachelor's grove and confides to her dead friend that she wishes she was with him. Yeah, I, I hear you on the rushed part because I think one of my complaints is that we know what Lisa is like after she meets her new friend, which we'll get to soon. Mm-hmm. But we don't get a good read on like the type of person she is before then. Right. We know she was silent for months. Yep. And she's kind of a loner and doesn't have many friends, partially because she's new at this school. But I just don't think we get a good sense of her personality. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, and then her personality changes like so much in this yes. film. So then, like, yeah, it, it's even harder if you're not starting from like a solid understanding of who she is. Uh, I mean, all we know about her is like, yeah, she's a loner, an outsider, kind of. Is she eccentric or just into or, like really into music? I guess. I think she's eccentric. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, she's into she's into like the Cure and Jesus and Mary Chain type stuff yeah. like that. You know. It makes me think, uh, like, in high school, I feel like that was uh, a personality trait. Like, you could define your whole personality based on, like, the, the that is your personality, like, what you listen to. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I felt like that in high school. I don't know if you went through that phase, too, but uh, are we being too harsh on her? Because I, I feel like her personality, all we know is she's, like, really into music and, like, she kind of keeps the, the soundtrack's, like, playing a huge role here. Yeah, like, for sure. I think people do that as adults. I think uh, we, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people identify with the things that they like. All those guys uh, out there wearing fish shirts. Yeah. 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 And uh, I'm going to call out half the listeners, but people in the horror community too, they just, they identify with it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's like their personality. Yeah. Which I, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad, but yeah, people, people do it big time. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd, I probably did it with, I'd say I probably have done it with music more than anything else in my life. Yeah. Same, same. I feel like, like in high school, I could be like, yeah, I had one personality who was just liking like the a band or something. So I, sure, I, I don't know how harsh to be on like her characterhood and that like there's not a lot of depth to her. Like, is that just her being a well-written high schooler, or is this like just uh, the, the writers not giving enough attention? I think not giving enough attention, or okay. just maybe maybe it's not even an attention thing. It's just the way she's written is hard to buy into. Okay. Because like you said, it's that archetype where somebody kind of 
on the outskirts of society a little bit. It has this experience where they suddenly feel free and they can kind of shed the shackles of societal convention and act as if they witch. And it's a, as if they, however they want to, like how they've always wanted to. Yeah. And it's a big triumphant moment in these types of stories. And you're like, all right, now I'm watching them do whatever <laughs> they want. Yeah. And they're confident. And uh, it, it it's not that moment for me in this movie, just because I didn't really grasp who she was before then. Right, right. Yeah, I, I agree. Do we have a clear understanding on why she's attracted to the one grave of that one guy? Or is that, I feel like that's told to us, but I don't know if we can tie it back to like something she's been through or like uh, something that calls out to her from that. Yeah, I think she just kind of picks, picks it as her fave. Okay. And it's kind of got his head, his profile like carved into it. So it's a pretty unique grave. It's the headstone that does it. Yeah. <laughs> the, cool. It's always the headstone that gets him. <laughs> yeah. Note to self for after I die, I'm going to find a really nice headstone. It's not going to be my head. It's going to be like uh, probably one of the Hemsworth guys. Right. But I would like caution you not to overly identify with your headstone. Oh, okay. You're more than just a headstone. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate that. I like to think uh, so. So that night, a terrible storm causes lightning to ominously strike the grave of this mystery man. And the following evening, while the rest of Lisa's family is out at the movies, Lisa is terrified when someone breaks through the glass patio door and barges into her home. And the terror soon turns to wonder as she realizes that this is the young man whose grave she has been visiting. He pulls from his pocket Lisa's mother's rosary, which she had left on his grave as a gift. And during this scene, there are some comedic elements that uh, worked pretty well for me. He barfs putrid green green bile onto her face at one point. (laughs) I can't remember if it's here or later where he starts to cry. (laughs) And she's like, oh, your tears (laughs) smell horrible. Yeah, Yeah, I love that detail. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, Or the neighbors uh, and like their judgment, like they're not even like looking up and they're just like, oh, that girl across the street's being really weird or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was good. And, and I can't remember if it was here or later, but there's a moment where she says to him, like when she wished she was with him, what she really meant was that she wished she was dead, mm-hmm. not that they should be together as a couple. And I, I felt like that could have been played up a little bit more, like as yeah. an emotional moment between the two of them. Mm-hmm. But I think it was just, I bring it up here because it was kind of another example of just feeling like we're a little closed off from Lisa emotionally to an extent like yeah there's there's like something deeper there that we're not getting to yeah uh, well I mean she's got this crazy backstory where like her mother's been murdered and uh, the whole time I'm thinking like yeah this is a girl obviously who's going through grief and l- the line you mentioned I think later she's like oh like throughout the movie I think there's like a line here or there where she's like yeah people just expected me to say these things or act this way but I haven't felt this way so uh, I think there's like some kind of metaphor going on here or like uh, we're supposed to see someone who's like been trapped in grief uh, suddenly like having an outlet here through uh, this Frankenstein like character. But I'm not sure if we're getting all of that uh, and it feels a little bit disconnected. But are, are you feeling that? I Yeah, I think that some things that were attempted just didn't quite land. It didn't really cut through you as a viewer to make you really feel like she was a sympathetic character where she really should have been like right she's been through something horrible she's this loner and now she's found something and she's found herself along the way exactly exactly uh i was also uh yeah this this home invasion scene is is fun and it's got its good comedic moments what though like how does she suddenly go from like 
being chased in the yard, like screaming, and then suddenly like playing the cure for uh, the, the 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 monster. Like I, I don't understand like what what like switch flipped for her. I think she's gradually realizing he's not moving to harm her or anything, and that he's you know some sort of creature who's not he's not just some dude who broke in, and he you know he kind of points to the art she made where she traced the writing on his grave. And she's like, that's, he like kind of points to himself like, hey, that's me. And he holds up the rosary. Mm. So I think it's clear to her like, this is, this is the dude who I've been hanging out with. Oh, okay. Okay. It was that realization. Okay. Yeah. Uh, So she hides the creature in her closet. And the next day while she's at school, he coughs up a worm into the food of the evil stepmother, Janet, which was an amusing scene. Oh, you thought so? <laughs> Can, like, the, the stepmom, like, what are your thoughts on her? Like, uh, well, I think we're induced her because she's like gets mad at uh, Lisa for like smashing a window or a mirror, and then uh, after that home invasion scene, like she like wants to put Lisa into like a a home. And in this scene, like, I feel like she's like it's like very over the top and like how she's like eating this like a uh, breakfast or whatever, and like not realizing there's like a monster in her living room that like keeps coming. I, I was having trouble like believing the the acting here like the 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 the, uh, the actions by the characters but was it pulling you out at all no i th- i was on board i mean it's a bit of a tropey scene but yeah she he's right there and she never really fully sees yeah. him and yeah <laughs> somehow like every time she turns around he's able to like come in there and like puke on her cereal or like the doorbell rings and he's able to like move around behind her it just, it just seemed like way too convenient i i feel like it's just such a like common seen in movies that it just kind of whizzed right by me without oh, okay. any critical yeah. thinking. Sure. Listening to headphones while uh, she's having her breakfast. Right. About like yeah. people taking advantage of her yeah. and like what kind of people there are in the world and stuff like that. That was pretty good. Yeah. Um, so anyway, she eats this worm and then when Lisa comes home, she accuses her like you planted this in there and I it's official. Like I'm sending you to reform school. And the creature, who's overhearing this from Lisa's closet, comes out and strikes Janet on the head with a sewing machine, killing her. And the two of them then bury Janet's body in the creature's open grave. Before they dispose of the body, though, they they cut off the creature cuts off Janet's ear. And we later learn his intention is for Lisa to sew it onto his head, and because uh, he's missing an ear as well as a hand, and as we later learn, a penis. <laughs> And she works as a seamstress, so she does have a talent for sewing. Yeah. The ear doesn't take at first, but the idea dawns on her that if electricity brought the creature to life, maybe it can help his new ear work. So she has him lie down in Taffy's tanning bed, which had minorly electrocuted Lisa in an earlier scene. And this does the trick. The creature can now hear out of his new ear. Hey, uh, one big thing I think that's happened here, just in like this first day, uh, Lisa's personality has already like changed so much. Like uh, the next day, like you know, she finds this guy one night uh, through the home invasion or whatever. And then the next day, she goes to school, different outfit. She's like talking to the the editor guy, like uh, yeah, flirting with him. Uh, and then yeah, this whole like murder scene, like she is pretty like on board with it, not like super like freaked out by what's going on here. So it just seems like uh, this isn't the Lisa we started out with, is it? No, it's not. This is a a, a a rapid personality change, but at the same time, as we were saying, I don't feel I had a good enough sense of her personality before that to understand the the change as well as I should. 
is it is it possible that she was always like this and uh, like this right. is Lisa? Oh, okay, okay. This is the real her, and now she's kind of been freed, and she's kind of got a taste for blood and a lust for life now. Interesting. Weirdly, I'm realizing there's a very similar scene in Freaky where she walks into school in like a oh, new sexier outfit, and everyone's <laughs> like, "Whoa!" Is that when Vince Vaughn is a? Uh, <laughs> is yeah, when she's possessed by Vince Vaughn. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. God, I love that movie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, now that she's got a taste for blood and, and with this newfound discovery that the creature's body can be repaired, she lures her lab partner Doug into the woods near school under the guise that she wants to hook up. Speaking of scenes out of other movies, that is straight out of Jennifer's body. Do you remember oh, yeah. that moment? Right, they go in the woods. Of course, this is a trap, and the creature lying in wait chops off Doug's hand with an axe, kills him, and the two of them dispose of his body in an open grave. And there's some poetic justice here in that Doug uh, loses the hand that he used to rope Lisa and right. you know grab her hand and put it on his crotch. I was glad that, I was worried because that, that was like a really dark event in the beginning of the film, and so I was glad they kind of circled back on it. I thought they were just gonna leave that out there. You know, one thing I was thinking about that scene is that so often I feel like sexual assaulters in movies are depicted as a jock or a cool kid. And I kind of feel like it's maybe a little bit important that they were like, hey, this is the nerdy science (laughs) lab partner that you think is actually like going to help and and too nerdy to to really be a threat. But no, he he assaults her. And I, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're dangerous. They're dangerous, these nerds. They really are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they doing they do the whole sewing plus tanning bed routine again with the hand. And not only does the hand work, but uh, each time they do this tanning bed process, the creature emerges looking less decayed and more like his old self. Yeah. Hey, uh, with that tanning bed, the, uh, the first time we find out that like it's faulty or like it shocks her in the beginning... Did a part of you think like that uh, this movie is going to be about like her being dead in the beginning and coming back to life? Or did you already always know that like this was going to be about her finding a monster? I knew it was going to be about her finding a monster and I had a feeling the electricity from the tanning bed would have something to do with it. Ah, uh, okay, okay. I thought they were like playing with expectations at the beginning when they, okay. uh, when they, uh, zapped and they just called it Lisa Frankenstein as like a That's her a first and last name. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so she's like Dr. Frankenstein, basically, right? Right. Because it's yeah. her monster. Okay, yeah, sure. I got it. Okay. Uh, so the, throughout the second act, Lisa and the creature begin to bond. They share personal information about themselves, him just kind of, you know, motioning and gesturing because he can't talk. They have a sing-along at Lisa's dad's piano when the creature shows her that he can play. And although the two of them are enjoying their developing relationship, things in the world of the living are starting to catch up to them. The police are investigating the disappearance of Janet, and Lisa's stepsister Taffy is worried sick. Taffy heads home from school early one day because she's so overwhelmed with grief and worry, and Lisa also notices that her crush Michael is also not at school that day, and she heads to his house where she is horrified to find Taffy and Michael in bed together. She's incredibly hurt that Taffy would do this to her, And, of course, the creature shows up at this moment, and he gets vengeance on Lisa's behalf by chopping off Michael's penis. Uh, He tries to hurt Taffy, too, but Lisa pulls him away, insisting that he not hurt her. And we see this shadow (laughs) on the wall of a penis and testicles rotating through the air (laughs) after the axe chop. That's great. 
<laughs> I feel like these kills are relatively bloodless, but I'm also a little surprised it, they maintain the PG-13 rating. Yeah, yeah, Multiple same. body parts cut off and reattached. We've got a shadow of genitalia flying severed through the air. Right, right. Yeah, we do. Uh, yeah, I we do see some blood too, like on the carpet and stuff uh, after right. some of the kills. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm surprised it's Future Thirteen. Yeah, I feel Same like point. the tone uh, probably keeps uh, it light. Yeah, keeps it keeps it light enough. But um, hey, uh, what what do you think as an audience our view of Lisa's at this point? Because uh, she isn't turning out to be like a great person, right? Or yeah, I mean, she's a kind of an antihero because she's a murderer. Uh, Really, she had nothing to do with her mom, her stepmom Janet's death. She couldn't have foreseen that. She didn't plan it. She was just happy about it. And Janet was a real jerk. She lured Doug to his death. I mean, she's basically a murderer for that one. And then Michael, she didn't she didn't plan that either. So she's really only participated in the murder of one person, and that was a person who sexually assaulted her. So bit of a revenge moment there so i think she's clearly you know not a uh, a great person but at the same time i think as a character in a movie you can still kind of be on board with her no kidding you could like still sympathize with her and like what she was doing because i don't know for some reason i know like a uh, taffy is kind of set up as like her foil but and and then like yeah Taffy like uh I don't know how manipulative Taffy is like uh she's obviously like closer with Lisa's dad and she's like the star child and uh kind of like uh throws Lisa under the bus in the beginning of the film but I feel like they start to switch roles and you start I don't know throughout this movie like I just started to feel more and more sorry for Taffy as we got like later in the film like now she's like lost her mom uh she's like looking for lisa for support she's always been like helpful to lisa in terms of like i can wear all my clothes and stuff so i I almost thought like yeah lisa's becoming like this uh less sympathetic uh person that we're not supposed to be rooting for and taffy's like becoming this more likable character but uh what, what were your thoughts on that yeah for sure i think taffy becomes more likable as the film goes on and she really never does anything that horrible she's just a little bit shallow and ignorant but she's always well-meaning and kind to lisa when she didn't really have to be and kind of goes out of her way to include her a lot of times right right and 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 we know lisa feels that way too and recognizes that she keeps the creature from killing taffy and before they get out of there she says to taffy like hey you've always been a good stepsister you're one of the only people that showed me any love or kindness well, I think this is a big turning point because almost like 20 minutes before this, uh, Taffy's like getting in the car and like crying about like how distressed she is about her mom. And Lisa's just like obviously like w- like rolling her eyes. Yeah. And, like, doesn't give a shit. It's like, all right, yeah, why don't you just move on? I'm just going to drive. So I feel like she like is totally uh, like switched places with Taffy. She's like this popular girl now who like doesn't give a shit about uh, what her stepsis is going through. And then I think the moment you're talking about almost feels like a change in character where she realizes that Taffy's always been there for her, perhaps. Yeah, and and that's what I think. I think that's cutting more to the crux of why Lisa isn't a great character because who is she? Like, yeah, why is she rolling her eyes at Taffy's sadness? That doesn't feel authentic to either her old self or even her new self. And I just don't think uh, the writing paints a clear picture of her. Yeah, uh, right. Either before or after her, her big change with the encountering the creature. Yeah, same. I agree. Yeah, it's really yeah. really hard to keep a, keep track of who she is. 
she's uh, I would go so far as to say she's a a poorly written character poorly written uh I think part of this uh I, I feel like she's overacting a lot for like comedic effect uh but I think that's just adding to like the confusion on who is she actually and how much of this is like uh, elaborate gestures and uh yeah uh, comments for show or something I yeah it was, it was really throwing me off yeah, this is one I, I feel like it's always hard to tell. Not always, but sometimes hard to tell where the flaw is with the acting, the writing, or the direction. Oh yeah, I'm hesitant to put this one on Catherine Newton just because I don't think the character was clear on the page, and I don't know that she was directed particularly well mm. either here. I feel like the direction shines in in the films like style and the cohesiveness of everything and the the mood and atmosphere, yeah, tone. But yeah, I, I honestly, I just I'm not sure anybody knew what to do with the character of Lisa. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. Actually, I think Zelda or um, not Zelda, Liza Soberano, who played Taffy, did a really excellent job. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think she was the breakout here. But she was a clear a more clearly outlined character. Like yeah. it was clear who she was and what she was supposed to be. Even Carla Gugino, who's, I mean, obviously a, a very good actor. The role of Janet is, you know, all you have to say is evil stepmom and you get who Janet is. There's, yeah. there's nothing that nuanced or complicated there. So yeah. Taffy has a cool arc though, too, that, uh, she, she's a little bit more nuanced and like just a, st- a typical character, isn't she? Right. You're tempted to, you, at first blush, you're kind of like, oh, this is like the, Shallow 80s cheerleader, yeah. uh, stepsister that everyone's lauding her accomplishments and stuff, but she's also a good person. Yeah, yeah, I think you realize that by the end for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, it's getting to be time to pay the piper here for Lisa and the creature because Taffy knows that the creature exists. She She's seen Michael die. They're basically pretty much found out here. So, yeah, as we said, Lisa kind of apologizes to Taffy, lets her know how much she's appreciated her. And in their final moments together, uh, Lisa and the creature, Lisa sews Michael's penis onto the creature and cements the implant with the, the whole tanning bed session. And the two of them then make love. And Lisa has the creature electrocute her to death in the tanning bed. And the tanning bed catches on fire. The entire garage becomes engulfed in flames. And that's, that's it for Lisa. That's how she dies. And in the film's denouement, we see Lisa's father and Taffy visiting her grave. And Taffy notices that the words beloved wife have been carved at the bottom of Lisa's grave. We then see the creature looking his old self on a park bench, his old alive self. And he's now capable of speech. And he's sitting on this park bench reading a book of poetry to a resurrected Lisa who is wrapped in bandages, looking slightly decayed and resting her head in his lap. So... A fittingly macabre romantic ending for this couple. Yeah. Hey, what'd you say? Denouma? Denouma? I believe that's how you pronounce it. Like the kind of the resolution of the movie. Yeah. We've been doing this podcast for like five and a half years. That word's never come up. Has I, it? I, I feel like I've said it before, but I'm, oh, now you have me second guessing it and yeah. using my own pronunciation of the word. I mean, it sounds really cool. I, I, I got to look it up. I mean, yeah. I'm not even sure how to spell that one. Nice. Denouma. Yeah, give you a denouement. 
A hot denouement right at your feet. Yeah, here it comes. So we've talked a lot about Lisa as a character and maybe the shortcomings there, but what do you think of the structure and tone and kind of all other aspects of this movie? Are you on board? What are you a fan of? What do you dislike? Uh, You know, I I think you captured it well when he talks about, like, the tone uh, and, like, there's a, a strong, like, adherence to this aesthetic of the 80s and a great soundtrack. So I, I think the setting like was really cool and it draws you in. Um, and I think a lot of the characters around Lisa are pretty well done and like fit like the stereotypes or they're more interesting like Taffy where they have like interesting story arcs. Uh, I like that like the men like play kind of a background role in this film for the most part. Like your main guy like doesn't talk the most of the movie. And then even like the editor, love interest, he's like kind of buried away in the plot somewhere. So I, I like that uh, it's it's driven by like just a few uh, characters, but yeah, it was just uh, I think the only thing that that kind of gave me pause from like really jumping in is the yeah the disorientation you know, with the main character and like trying to figure out like who she is and like is she someone you're rooting for or is she like this terrible person? Did she perhaps kill her mother? Like is that uh, an idea that that you're th- uh, that comes to mind as you're watching her like be so passive about these other murders? Wow. So is that axe murderer story something that she concocted and she killed her own mother in a fit of rage? Is it possible? What do you you think? Are we we supposed to think so? I don't think we're supposed to think so. I think that's an interesting idea that is maybe specific to Ashvin. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she's like so cool with everyone uh, dying though, right? Yeah. I mean, I'd love to come your... I've come to love your weird takes on stuff like this because... Sometimes when I think about it, I'm like, oh, that's not so weird because she is pretty on board with murder. She just keeps going (laughs) about her life. (laughs) Yeah. And it is really weird that she was, her mom was randomly killed by an axe murderer. Right. uh, Right in front of her. She's the only witness. Um, Yeah. That's an interesting point. I don't think that's what's supposed to have happened, but. Okay. It's cool to think about it. Then it's kind of weird they never really circle back to that. Like, that's not, like, part of, like, the main plot. Like, I, I thought maybe you would see that serial killer come back up, like, later in the film or something. But they just kind of, that's only just background information, I guess. It's kind of a weird throwaway, like, BT-dubs moment. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, her mom's go by an axe murder. <laughs> yeah, here's a cool scene of an axe murder coming in. <laughs> it feels a little unnecessary, maybe. Yeah. So It's just... Why not have her die in a car accident or an illness or I something know. like that? Make it a more everyday thing just because it's maybe a little distracting, especially if, like you said, you're not going to touch on it again or right. she's not specifically traumatized by all these other murders with axes. Like yeah. The axe is a murder weapon twice, I'm pretty sure, and with Michael and Doug. So. Hmm. You think she'd have a little P- PTSD about that. Right, exactly. She wasn't speaking for months, supposedly. Exactly, yeah. I, I think that'd be really hard to see happen again. But Right. Maybe you're uh, right. Maybe she killed her mom with the I, axe. That's kind of where I ended uh, so like the, with the way she is throughout this film. But uh, otherwise, I thought all the other elements like worked pretty well to like feel more cohesive. Uh, what, what did you think? I agree. I really like the style. I like the plot. It's a... Uh, Similar story, kind of a familiar archetype with these outlaws or outcasts with an unlikely love story that the rest of the world couldn't possibly understand. I like that story archetype, and I think that that was done well here. The structure and the plotting was done well. I really like the stylization of the film. I like the animated sequence and the 
weird trippy dream sequences, how they were worked into it. I also really appreciated how the 80s were depicted with kind of a soft touch, like an authentic touch, but a soft touch. Like After last year's... Yeah. Yeah. Totally After killer I, last yeah. year made me really worried for this film taking place in the 80s because, my God, that movie just milked the 80s for cheap laughs and it really didn't work for me. Mm. And this was just a film that happened to take place in the 80s, which made sense with the plot device of the tanning bed and Lisa's overall goth style and her taste and stuff like that. So right. I felt like it worked. I, I I feel like I'm pushing upon the edge of cultural fatigue with the 80s throwbacks, but this one, you know, I think like it worked. A, it, it felt authentic and true yeah. to the story. Yeah, at, at the beginning, uh, I kind of got a sense they were pushing it too hard with the soundtrack. Uh, they leaned so heavily into it. It was like every two, three minutes, it was like a different like song from the 80s playing. And I, I was starting to wonder, like, is this a, a movie like to, trying to tell a story? Is this just a montage of like, hey, let's a, a great 80s playlist, which it's a great, great playlist. It's a great 80s playlist. Yeah. yeah. I found myself less bothered by it because I liked all the <laughs> yeah. songs. Yeah, me too. I definitely go back and listen to the soundtrack. But it, sure. it makes me wonder like what, what the purpose here was. But uh, hearing all those songs kind of back to back didn't make it feel like it was trying too hard to be like putting you in this in this time frame. I, it didn't jump out to me, but I could see that criticism for sure. I think sure. part of the reason it didn't jump out to me was because I was just enjoying the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, it's also a soundtrack. Uh, the other thing you mentioned, uh, liking like this, uh, what do you call it, like the story format? Uh, uh, like, the archetype of the yeah, story? Yeah, the archetype, yeah. Uh, so the archetype here, and if we talk about like this like in Cinderella context, this is a girl who uh, is an outcast, finds uh, a monster... Um, you know, struggles and like kind of finds herself through this monster, and then ultimately, like, what's the climax? Is it them climaxing together? Like, is, is it like I, I feel like they're <laughs> that that sex scene like was supposed to be like very uh, like a big moment for both characters here, but to me, it, it didn't feel like it because I feel like the love story, like, yeah, they're bonding the whole time, but she's like way into this other dude, and then this it's kind of like a hasty decision, like, hey, let's uh, have sex and then I'm gonna kill myself. Uh, what did you feel? Did you feel like that was an emotional enough scene? Um, I think that the real climax kind of, or the happy ending, is that she gets what she wanted. She gets her wish. She wishes she was dead, and she's so uh, cemented in this, or like steeped in this goth culture and the cure and, you know, death and the macabre. Yeah. And his wish was... I think his ideal life would have been to stay alive and stay in love. And, you know, he kind of gets that. He's alive, he's in love, he's reading poetry to the woman he loves, and she gets her wish in that <laughs> she is dead and she didn't die a virgin and she's with somebody she loves as well. So uh, I think okay. that is the uh, her and Prince Charming right off into the sunset type ending for oh, okay. the type of person that she is. Okay, so it wasn't them making love, it was more like them ending in the being the people they want to be, I guess, or living the lives or deaths that they want to. Yeah. Know. I think you could kind of look at either as kind of part of the extended climax or. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting that you talked about men kind of being side characters or not really part of the action. I feel like when I watch movies nowadays, I just cannot help find themes of parenthood and many of them, which is another thing that made me feel old. I was like, Wow, I'm like looking my at myself as 
the dad in this movie <laughs> instead of identifying with the yeah the, the, main the adult main character. She's a young adult, but she's yeah. an adult. But it's interesting how her dad. He's like, you'd be tempted to call him harmless, but you could make an argument that it's his apathy that is probably as big of a contributor to Lisa's pain as anything. Oh, for sure. Like he barely even sees her. He never sticks up for her to his new wife or never acknowledges that she's having a hard time. And you could make an argument that he's maybe the single most harmful character in the story as far as a contributor to Lisa's despair. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. He's totally removed and uh, pushing her further into like uh, being an outcast or like having to like be on her own with her feelings. So, yeah, very like an unsympathetic father here. Yeah, and I mean that kind of character, even in Stranger Things... It's often depicted, and especially in 80s movies, just it feels like the dad's main goal is to sit at the table with a newspaper and coffee. <laughs> and that's all he aspires to. 80s dad, yeah. Yeah, and it's just kind of passed off as like, oh, wh- you know, whatever, that's dad. Yeah. But, and I'm not saying that's, you know, if you had a dad like that, you're ruined. <laughs> but I think in, in, with a character who's been through so much trauma... To have her dad just be utterly unavailable to her is a big deal. And it's kind of, it's just kind of a trope in this movie, but I wonder if it's kind of there for a reason that he's basically nothing to her. Like she's still lonely and feels like she has nothing. Do you think uh, the movie draws uh, enough... um does does it play on that enough to show like I mean yeah I think we can look at this and say like wow yeah he's uh, obviously contributing to her grief and depression um, but does the movie you think like purposefully lead audiences down that route or is that just us like digging like looking between the lines? In a way, I think it does because it doesn't hold your hand and and kind of lead you to it, but it's pretty obvious that he is just not in her corner at all. And that if her stepmother said, you're going away to reform school, he would not stand in the way of that happening. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it felt like it was, uh, her versus all three of them. Like, uh, the sister, the stepsister wasn't helping cause she was like kind of, uh, like sucking up to the parents and like really happy to have this full family. And then, yeah, the dad's checked out and the mom's like very, uh, uh, mean or the stepmom's very mean so I, I kind of put all three of those in a bucket together but you think we should call it the dad specifically like he's got the more I, yeah he's he's he should be a lot more responsible as, as the father here I kind of feel like he is the uh, you know Carla Gugino is the all out villain I mean, she's over the top and, and mean but you know you can better cope with that if you've got someone in your corner sure saying like hey like ignore her or standing up and saying hey don't talk to my daughter like that but i think it's his the inaction of good people can often be the most harmful thing yeah for sure i think we'll we'll talk about that very soon on the next episode yeah, right yeah <laughs> uh, oh my gosh we could not have picked a tonally more opposite back to back we're going to record speak no evil from 2022 after this everybody <laughs> similar my themes. god yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, and I, I think that points to the value of the monster. Like, uh, she doesn't have anyone in her corner, and that's like where she's starting from. And I, I think this could have been a beautiful story about someone being in that position and then finding a monster and then like helping it, it coax her out of this corner that she's been put into. 
But unfortunately, like, yeah, I, I just feel like maybe she comes out too quick or she was in a different room and, like, we just didn't know what corner she might have been in or, like, yeah, like, where to start with her, I guess. Yeah, I really feel like the poor characterization of her really hampers the story in general. It just kind of hamstrings the movie a little bit. It really does, yeah. Um, a Discord user, Maricat. I saw there was some combo on this movie there, and she said, with Diablo Cody, I can always see what she is trying to say, but she never quite gets there. Mm. I, I Juno, I loved. I feel like I, did, I have no complaints with that movie, but I feel I feel what Mary Cat is saying with both this and Jennifer's body. Like we're almost there. Like you're you're pointing towards something great, mm-hmm. but you haven't quite gotten us there. You're not like connecting the dots of it together or like following through on like certain ideas. Yeah. 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 Like Lisa feels like she's almost an homage to other characters of her ilk in previous cinema. She's kind of painted with a broad brush, just like not carved out in enough detail for us. I agree. I agree. Yeah. That that became kind of hard. And uh, yeah, I, I think that really took away from being able to like like her or like follow the story and yeah uh, yeah just just made it hard as a viewer how about the kills i mean they were relatively bloodless but i feel like they were pretty fun and exciting they weren't meant to be gigantic spectacles it's not a slasher movie but they each had one or two entertaining quirks about them yeah i thought they fit the tone of the film yeah like agreed uh, yeah quick but like uh like added like to the comedic element of the, of the film. there was usually some comedy in each one like carla gugino's expression before she falls to the floor lifeless is pretty amusing sure the creature's pride at his axe throwing abilities when doug is killed <laughs> then of course you got the comedic shadow of michael's genitals flying <laughs> through the air head over testicles yeah pretty pretty low body count overall though right only three Four, I think the creature kills some dude and steals his car. Oh, yeah. That was a funny kill, too. <laughs> yeah. Because like, I was like harassing a, a lawnmower kid or something. Yeah. I can't remember exactly how that one went down. Oh, uh, yeah. This was a fun scene. Yeah. One of these days, I swear I'm going to just bring my notebook into the movie and, and jot down some notes. <laughs> You'll be that guy in the theater. I'll be that guy. notebook, yeah. <laughs> uh, anything else, buddy, or should should we rate this thing? Uh, I think I'm ready to rate it. Yeah, I think I think we hit everything, so I'm good with fewer. Okay, uh, zero to five repaired genitals. What do you give this movie? Uh, I think I'm landing at two and a half repaired genitals. Uh, I think it's entertaining. It's funny. Uh, the dialogue is sharp. That you know we've come to kind of expect from Diablo Cody, and there's a great '80s goth aesthetic uh, to this film that I really enjoyed. It was a nice throwback. Uh, but unfortunately, I feel like the stitching of the plot line and the main character's arc doesn't quite hold together, and it doesn't follow through on like many of the ideas that uh, it kind of hits upon throughout its runtime. So nice. yeah, two and a half for me. What about you? We were working some Frankenstein uh, <laughs> wordplay into the yeah the stitchings. <laughs> uh, what about you? I think I give it three point five out of five repaired genitals. While Lisa is a poorly fleshed out character, the story structure and tone provide an entertaining and comedic ride with just the right amount of style for me. Nice. I enjoyed it. I, I was happy and having fun in the theater, but yeah, it, it, there is this feeling of just, ugh, so could close. have been better. I, yeah. I feel like it wouldn't even have been that hard 
Just yeah. like a few minor tweaks, and it could have been a much stronger movie. I agree. I agree. It was really funny. Uh, I feel like the dialogue was, was was pretty good. There were some good jokes and good editing. Yeah, yeah. I had some hearty hearty chuckles out loud in the theater. Yeah, yeah, that's that's that a win. That's great. Yeah. All right, man. Anything else? Uh, no. That's all I got. All right, everybody. Well, that has been our discussion on Lisa Frankenstein. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. If you want to connect with us, go to horrormovieclub.com. You can find a big orange button there to subscribe to our Patreon, where we put out a bonus episode uh, every month or so. And let's see, you can go to the social links button there on our website, horrormovieclub.com, and find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts where we post what movie we'll be discussing next week. I already mentioned it was Speak No Evil this week, but... uh, We also have a link for our Discord server where you can talk to other listeners and horror movie fans. It's a great community we have there, and Discord is a great app for actual conversation, unlike Twitter or many of the other social media apps. And I think that's about all I really want to say right now, so until next time, if you're thinking of doing some indoor tanning this winter, maybe consider bringing some body upgrades with you in there and see if they stick. (laughs) What what do you think your next one's going to be? Oh, boy. I don't know, man. Um, I feel like a third hand could never hurt. A third hand? (laughs) Juggling could be a lot easier. Oh, yeah. I could be an expert juggler. Yeah. Probably better at sports. Look at that guy with his beautiful hair juggling so well. (laughs) It's really cool, Nate.